This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, that would be me, your host, Douglas Everett. And uh, my goodness, it's amazing to me sometimes how a week seems to fly by between the intervals during which time I'm sitting in front of an open microphone. And yet, Mr. McMillan, here we find ourselves yet again with a bunch of material around us which we will attempt to pull together into a program that is both entertaining and informative. As we do this show week after week, month after month, year after year, you may have noticed, assuming you've been following us this whole time, that, uh, well, patterns emerge. We do tend to return to the same topics because they're topics we feel passionate about, and sometimes we know something about, and sometimes we just find them to be amusing. Every once in a great while, we like to step back and take the long view and remind ourselves and you that uh, nobody gets out of here alive. So while we're here on this earth, we should strive to do well and have a reasonably good time while we're doing it. We also want to start off by acknowledging the fact that a lot of you listening have not been listening to us for many years. You are relatively new to the program. To that we say, welcome. On last week's program, we mentioned how we used to start off with a quote and a quip and a good news item and stats and all that. We kind of got away from it. I think today we're going to return to that just for, you know, nostalgia's sake. And for our quote of the day, let us begin with a statement by the legendary journalist I.F. Stone who once said, all governments lie, but disaster lies in wait for countries whose officials smoke the same hashish they give out. Let's jump to a few stats. First stat, according to Bloomberg.com, public relations specialists outnumbered journalists by more than six to one last year. Employment for PR people is expected to grow to 282,000 by the year 2026, while the number of journalism jobs is expected to shrink to 45,900 over the same period. And yes, we find that as disturbing as you do. According to the Wall Street Journal, immigration was responsible for 48% of U.S. population growth during the past fiscal year, up from 35% in fiscal year 2011. One in ten American counties experienced population growth primarily due to immigration. And according to NPR.org, 55% of teachers say they don't teach climate change in their classrooms or talk to their students about it, with almost two-thirds of respondents saying it's outside their subject area. (laughs) More than 80% of U.S. parents support teaching climate change in schools. Now, I can see it being outside your subject area if you're teaching gym or English, or as Mr. Millen points out, math. And of course, I would include math in that because math teachers never want to enter anything that has to do with the real world. By the way, I know we're always taking pot shots at the way they teach math in America. And to all you mathematicians out there, well... I don't want to get into, like, the methodology here today and be critical, but I do want to say we like math. like math a lot. Math is indispensable to modern life. We just wish they taught 
practical stuff in math class. I mean, algebra is great, but, you know, arithmetic does have its place. I do find it disturbing that when the bill is 1377 and you hand the clerk a 10 and a 5 and two pennies, he looks dumbfounded as to why the pennies are there. But what do you know, when he pushes the buttons and the machine tells him to give back a buck 25 and change, he looks surprised. Enough of that. Uh, from the good news section for today's program, we're going to cite the following. A NASA probe has recorded a Mars quake for the first time. Yes, a seismological tremor has been detected on the red planet. It was equivalent to a magnitude 2.5 earthquake here on Earth. It was registered on April 6th and uh, should open the door to some understanding of what's going on inside our planetary neighbor. And yes, it's true. Astronauts did leave seismometers on the moon back in the 60s and 70s, which uh, I guess led to a lot of understanding about what goes on inside the moon, although I've never seen a study of it. But I'm assuming that data came out of that that was useful. If you know something about this, by the way, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We haven't heard from you in a while, dear listener. And I know we must have some physicists and geologists out there in our listening audience. And while we used to do a joke of the day on this program, we found it was very tough to come up with quality jokes on a weekly basis. So in lieu of that today, I'm going to take the week magazines. It must be true. I read it in the tabloids section for a vein of humor. By the way, although the week tends to put that disparaging title on these news items, I, I think that, you know, by and large, they are, you know, straight up news stories because they do, you know, site specifics and are hard to fake. I think it'd be really hard to fake this story that a California skydiver was reunited with his $15,000 prosthetic leg after losing it midair during a jump. Reportedly, Dion Calloway searched fruitlessly for the wayward limb, but workers at a lumber yard found the prosthetic, and authorities eventually traced it back to Calloway. The leg is reported to be in perfect shape, having survived a 15,000-foot fall. Calloway, who lost his real leg as a result of a previous jump, said about the return prosthetic, well, it's the second leg he'd lost while skydiving. All right, and here's one we, we just have to love. We hope you feel the same way. An Austrian fugitive has turned him in after 10 years on the lam in Spain's Canary Islands because he'd gotten fed up with living in a tropical paradise. Police confirmed that the ex-jailbird, age 64, had escaped from prison and settled on the island of Tenerife. He presented himself to cops at Salzburg's train station carrying two suitcases. He said he had returned because Tenerife is not as nice as it used to be, and he lived there long enough. He was taken to a Salzburg jail. You know, I think he's kind of demonstrating that old adage that, you know, the best is the enemy of the good. Tenerife is not as nice as it used to be, so I might as well return to a Salzburg jail? I don't know. Whaley finds out that Salzburg jails aren't as nice as they used to be. Boy, is he going to be disappointed. All right, let's do follow-up. Something else we, we've always done on a regular basis here. I mentioned this article on last week's show, but didn't have my fingers on it, but I do today. So here's the report from Lauren Grush writing in TheVerge.com. Mars One Ventures, the company that claimed it was going to send hundreds of people to live and ultimately die on the red planet, has gone bankrupt. The company's liquidation, which took place last January, was disclosed by Swiss authorities. 
Mars One had hoped to launch a series of missions supported by robots that would set up hardware and supplies. The company had asked for applications for Mars, colonizers from around the world, and actually chose 100 candidates who applied, despite warnings from Mars One that it would send them to the Red Planet to start the first human settlement, but that it would not return them to Earth as it lacked the technology to get them off the planet. We hope that none of you out there are are deeply disappointed by this story. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and more. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for The Devil, whose official North American church, the Satanic Temple, has been awarded tax-exempt status by the IRS. Founded by atheists in 2013, the temple seeks to highlight and mock government officials favoring of specific religions. We suspect that Anton Zandor LeVay is looking up from somewhere and smiling. For more on Mr. LeVay, we refer you back to our show number 666 on our archives at radioparallax.com, which we dedicated to a look at Beelzebub and his minions. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for faking it, says the week, with the news that a study by the Institute of Labor Economics found that both males and wealthy people are more likely to pretend to know what they're talking about when asked to discuss non-existent mathematical concepts, such as proper numbers and declarative fractions. We do note that the Institute for Labor Economics is getting math instructors off the hook on this one and instead focusing on males and wealthy people. And in what Radio Parallax would have to describe as an ugly week for activism. The news is that the Scottish Maritime Museum has announced that it will henceforth stop referring to ships as she. Director David Mann said, I think that we have to move with the times. He reached this decision after woke vandals defaced two of the museum's signs. And no, we don't know anything about woke vandals, but we intend to learn by next week's program. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week for milestones and Americans with the news that President Trump uttered his 10,000th false or misleading statement of his presidency, according to the Washington Post's fact checkers. In the past seven months, Trump has averaged 23 false or misleading claims a day, including such whoppers as claiming that his border wall is already being built. Speaking of Donald Trump... And here we go. Robert Trzinski, writing in TheBulwark.com, has noted that President Trump is trying to gaslight you. And if you're unfamiliar with the term gaslight, it refers to a classic 1940s movie wherein the heroine in the book convinced that she's crazy by her husband. Or I, I, Actually, I've never seen the movie. I, I'm a little vague on the exact details. But it certainly has become a popular term during the Trump administration. <laughs> you're being told that these are not the droids you're looking for. But evidently, the president stung by Joe Biden's condemnation of his infamous response to the deadly 2017 white nationalist riot in Charlottesville, Virginia, 
Well, the president and his allies are now insisting he never said they were, quote, very fine people on both sides, unquote. Trump says he was actually talking about people who were peacefully protesting the removal of a monument to Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Said Jane Coaston in Vox.com, the trouble with this dodge is there was no second group of protesters. The Unite the Right rally wasn't a spontaneous outpouring from Confederate statue enthusiasts. It was organized by prominent white nationalists like Richard Spencer and Jason Kessler and branded with explicit anti-Semitic and Nazi imagery. The people Trump claimed were protesting very quietly actually marched through the streets with torches chanting blood and soil and Jews will not replace us. And another gaslighting news related to the president. Trump has claimed that he hires temporary foreign workers at Mar-a-Lago because Americans don't want the jobs. But government records, in fact, show that at least 58 U.S. workers applied for such jobs at Mar-a-Lago from 2014 to 2018, and only one was hired. The resort relies on temporary foreign workers brought into the country under the H-2B visa program. So I guess if we do ever get around to building that wall on the southern border, this, this will not be a problem for Mar-a-Lago. This reminds me of an article that was in the New York Times a month ago. The title was, Wanted More Immigrant Workers. Just a quote from the beginning of it. It takes Carlos Rojas two and a half hours to drive from his home in Stockton to a job spreading plaster on houses going up in Campbell on the southern rim of Silicon Valley. The trip is worth it, though. The 30-year-old immigrant from the Mexican state of Oaxaca says he makes $25 an hour depending on the job. That is more than twice as much as Stockton's farm workers typically make in the fields. And his boss pays for the gas. Said Rojas, a lot of people returned to Mexico after the housing bust, and then came the deportations. People got scarce. Now that the work came back, they're short of people. Despite all of Trump's rhetoric, I ask you, dear listener, to drive by any construction site you may see anywhere and observe who's doing the work. Trump alleged when he was a candidate for the presidency that Mexico was not sending us their best people. Of course, we suspect that the president's standards for the best people out there are the kind of people that are engaged in Manhattan real estate scams, not the kind of folks who plaster walls. And speaking of people that Trump likes, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel says he will name an Israeli settler settlement in the Golan Heights after President Trump, out of gratitude for the U.S.'s recent recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the contested region. And by the way, just, just a word or two about the politics over in Israel. Before the April election, Etan Netchen, writing in Haaretz, said Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu now openly endorses Jewish fascism. According to Haaretz, he has engineered a merger between the far-right Zionist religious party, Jewish Home, and Otzma Yahut, an ultra-right party founded by followers of the U.S.-born rabbi Meir Kahane. The Israeli publication takes the time to note that Ozma Yehut isn't just another right-wing party. It has been called the Israeli version of the KKK, and its predecessors have always been shunned. A vicious racist, Kahane believed in expelling all non-Jews from Israel, including Israeli citizens, banning intermarriage between Arabs and Jews, 
and annexing and purging the Palestinian territories. When Kahane, who was assassinated in Manhattan in 1990, was elected to the Knesset in the mid-80s, lawmakers with Netanyahu's Likud party would leave the chamber en masse whenever he rose to speak. Yet now Netanyahu wants to provide political cover to the most violent element in Israeli society. Strong words. As are the comments by Noah Siegel writing in the Jerusalem Post who said these people are literally terrorists. Otzma's leader, Michael Ben-Ari, has been banned from entering the United States for nearly a decade because of his links to terrorism. He belonged to and has never disavowed the Kahanist cock movement whose members planned a series of assassinations against Palestinian mayors and tried to blow up the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. It was cock member Baruch Goldstein who killed 29 Palestinian worshippers at the Tomb of the Patriarchs in Hebron in 1994. And in one final disturbing item from international law, we have this. The International Criminal Court, a couple weeks ago, dropped plans to investigate alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, citing a lack of cooperation from the U.S. and other parties. The probe would have looked at civilian killings, torture, and other abuses in the 18-year-old Afghan war, included by U.S. soldiers and intelligence officers, the Taliban, and Afghan government forces. President Trump has hailed the decision as a major international victory. His administration has vowed to deny U.S. visas to any ICC staff who investigate or rule on war crimes cases involving Americans, and recently revoked the visa of the court's chief prosecutor, Fatal Ben Sauda. Afghan human rights campaigner Hadi Marafat decried the ICC for abandoning the probe, saying the court was a last hope for all of us in a country which is completely lacking in justice. All right, let's, let's move into something a little lighter, which oddly enough takes us to the obituary section of, in this case, the week. Citing the passing of Charles Van Dorn a couple weeks ago. For a few weeks in the late 1950s, Charles Van Dorn was considered by many TV viewers to be the smartest man in America. An English instructor at Columbia University, Van Dorn, trounced 13 competitors in a row on NBC's Big Money General Knowledge Quiz Show 21. Van Dorn, age 30, dazzled viewers with his smarts. He named the second, third, and fourth, and fifth wives of Henry VIII and their fates, listed the four Balearic Islands, and gave the common names for caries, myopia, and missing patella reflexes. He took home $1 million in today's money, but it was, but it was all a fix. The educator had been fed answers by producers who scripted the show for maximum entertainment value. When the ruse was revealed in 1959, Van Doren went from public hero to villain. I have deceived my friends, he said in an apology, and I had millions of them. Van Doren suffered uh, mightily for what, uh, what transpired on television. He had denied wrongdoing to a grand jury, but confessed all in congressional hearings in 1959. He got fired from Columbia, he lost a lucrative NBC contract, and received a suspended sentence for perjury. Van Doren went to work for Encyclopedia Britannica and to write fiction and nonfiction books. He stayed silent about the 21 scandal, made famous again by Robert Redford's 1994 movie quiz show, until 2008. In a New Yorker article in that year, the then 82-year-old Van Doren told his story and explained how he tried to avoid people who'd ask, Aren't you Charles Van Doren? 
His response was, that's my name, but I'm not who you think I am. Or at least, I don't want to be. Well, let's hope nothing like this happens to that, that new guy winning all that money on Jeopardy. Actually, I take it back. Having auditioned twice for Jeopardy and, and having done pretty well in both auditions, only to find that for whatever reason, alas, they never called me. Well, on second thought, take this guy down. Could you answer all those questions they asked to uh, Charles Van Dorn without help? Well, let's see. The wives of Henry VIII, those did, that did come up on Jeopardy on a regular basis. Uh, second wife, Anne Boleyn, beheaded. Third wife, Jane Seymour, gave him an heir, died in childbirth. Fourth wife, Anne something, I think. I think she lived. And I can only think of three Balearic Islands while we're at it. No, I can't. But allow me to quote from the immortal Muhammad Ali, who, upon flunking his test for admission to the United States Army, said, I never said I was the smartest. I said I was the greatest. Anyway, speaking of congressional testimony, and how's that for a segue, we'd like to return back to what Michael Cohn said before Congress. There's a very interesting article about Mr. Cohn in The New Yorker by Jeffrey Tubin, which I think we should quote from, and will quote from momentarily. But I want to reiterate what we quoted on this program a few weeks back. Statements made by Max Boot in the Washington Post in the wake of Cohn's testimony before Congress. Said Mr. Boot, by my count, Cohen, the John Dean of Russiagate, implicated Trump in at least five felonies. If Trump knew and approved a WikiLeaks plan to dump Democratic emails stolen by Russia in order to help his campaign, that would be conspiracy to defraud the United States, what is commonly called collusion. Trump committed perjury and obstruction if he lied to Mueller about WikiLeaks. And Cohen says that Trump and his lawyers made it clear he should lie to Congress about Trump's attempt to build a Trump Tower in Moscow late into the 2016 campaign. The Daniels payments made by Trump violate campaign finance law. And Cohen said Trump had repeatedly lied about his assets to get loans and reduce his taxes, which looks like bank, wire, and tax fraud. Michael Cohen started his three-year jail term this week based on crimes he committed for the benefit of his boss, Donald J. Trump. But again, before we go into that, let's hit the reset button here on this issue of Mueller versus Barr. The Week, and God bless The Week for helping this program being produced on a weekly basis, said that an extraordinary rupture between Special Counsel Robert Mueller and Attorney General William Barr became public this week when it was revealed that Mueller complained that Barr's four-page summary of his findings was misleading. In a letter written on March 27th and leaked this week, Mueller wrote that Barr's summary, in which the Attorney General absolved President Trump of collusion and obstruction of justice, quote, did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of his office's work and conclusions, end quote, and left the public confused about, quote, crippling aspects of the results, unquote. Mueller, in that letter, asked Barr to immediately release the special counsel's own summaries of the Russia investigation findings. Barr did not, waiting three more weeks to release a redacted version of Mueller's final report, again claiming it exonerated the president. Barr, who apparently has declined to make further comments before Congress, risking a contempt of Congress citation as far as we understand it, did say previously, before the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings, that Mueller's letter was a bit snitty, at which point he defended his own interpretation of the investigation's findings, saying Mueller's work, 
quote, concluded when he sent his report to the Attorney General, unquote, saying at that point, it was my baby. Writing in Esquire.com, Charles Pierce says Barr is rocketing up the list of the worst Attorney Generals in history. It was already obvious that Barr grossly distorted the Mueller report in his four-page summary, allowing the White House to shape the narrative for a few critical days. Now, we know his behavior was even more egregious than that. Barr had already received Mueller's letter when he was asked in a Senate hearing on April 10th whether the special counsel supported his decision to clear the president on obstruction of justice. Barr said, quote, I don't know whether Bob Mueller supported my conclusions, unquote. Charles Pierce notes that is a deliberate lie under oath, and it's now obvious that Barr should be impeached and removed from office. And writing about this brouhaha in the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin said Mueller has good reason to be angry. In documenting 10 instances of possible obstruction by Trump, he noted he couldn't indict a sitting president under existing guidelines. These are existing guidelines of the Justice Department. But said there are constitutional processes for addressing presidential misconduct, such as impeachment hearings by Congress. But Barr took it upon himself to clear the president anyway. David Graham in the Atlantic.com said even though the report can read as an impeachment referral to Congress, Trump and allies had three weeks to bake in Barr's conclusion that the president had been cleared. By the time the full text was released, the ardor for impeachment hearings among legislators and the public had faded. Stay tuned, this one ain't going away. All right, we got three minutes left to talk about Jeffrey Tubin's article. Tubin notes that Michael Cohen is one of only two people that receives a, a substantial prison sentence in the investigations that arose out of the 2016 elections. The other is Paul Manafort. Unlike Manafort, Cohn wasn't the principal beneficiary of most of his crimes. Donald Trump was. I highly recommend this article to you, my dear listener. There's much talk about the investigation surrounding Donald Trump being conducted by the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. But, turns out, it's the same group that is sending Cohn away to prison, claiming that he had lied to them and not cooperated, which at some point is undeniably true. Back in 2018, when he was lying to everyone who would listen about uh, Trump's affairs, Trump and allies were praising Cohn to the skies. And by the way, hinting along the way that a presidential pardon might be coming his way if he behaved. Turns out back in February 2018, without Cohn's knowledge, Robert Mueller's office began sharing their evidence with the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, which led to the raid on Michael Cohn's office. It should be noted that in order to obtain the warrants for that raid, the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office submitted an affidavit of more than 200 pages describing Cohn's potential criminal liability for bank fraud and illegal campaign contributions. The affidavit made it clear that Cohn would likely be a subject to criminal charges, so he was presented with a dilemma familiar to every underling facing pressure to cooperate with law enforcement, whether or not to flip. What's lost in the shuffle about Michael Cohn is the fact that he did not flip, and his temporizing led him to disaster. Last August, he pled guilty to multiple charges, and in doing so, passed up the opportunity of winning an acquittal. And by failing to cooperate fully, he lost any hope of receiving a significant reduction in his sentence. Along the way, the White House, sensing the possibility that he might flip, turned their backs on him, called him a liar, and set him up as the fall guy. It should also be noted that Robert Mueller regarded Trump's tirades against Cohn, and especially his implications about Cohn's family, who he made allusions to, their criminality, and how he might want to look into that, 
as further evidence that the president could have obstructed justice. Said Mueller, the timing of the statement supports an inference that they were intended, at least in part, to discourage Cohen from further cooperation. And there's a little bit more to say about this, but I think we should carry that over into the second segment. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. <laughs> 